Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 43. We are closing in on 50 shows. I can't believe it. It'll be no surprise to you guys for me to say I'm so excited because I'm always excited uh, to have today's guest on the show. It's Mike Viking. He is the director of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen, gave a brilliant TED talk on the happiness paradox, which we talk about today, why certain people are sad in very happy environments, for example, why their sadness is amplified. It's really, really interesting. Uh, But also he's the New York Times bestseller of The Little Book of Hygge the Danish art of living well and there's just so many fantastic little nuggets of wisdom, beautiful things that we can do and a brilliant group listener challenge that I so want you guys to get involved with and post your beautiful pictures on Instagram. I'm not going to tell you what the challenge is yet. You'll just have to listen to the show. But if you want to reach out on Instagram and use that Lotox Life hashtag or at Lotox Life so that I personally see it, uh, I would love that because I think there is so much inspiration in today's show, tiny, tiny tweaks that have huge, beautiful implications you know, why would we not try some of the beautiful things that Mike and I talk about today? We have another wonderful week of ReSparkle sponsoring our show. And you guys know that one of my favorite things to do is shine the light on businesses doing right by people and by planet. And Pearl and her team are so dedicated to not only reducing plastics, but reducing cost of low-tox products by, with all of their spray bottles, just supplying the concentrate and the empty bottle the first time you buy it so that you fill it with the 90% water that all cleaning products are full of instead of paying to have something that's 90% water and 10% concentrate shipped around Uh, for you to buy. So that's how they're able to come in at such a wonderful price. And then you only have to buy the refills after that, which saves you so much on plastic, which is so great. I dared to share the fact that I absolutely loved the spray action of the multi-purpose spray, the red one. And you will understand what I mean when you get one. And the beautiful offer that I have for all of you guys is a free microfiber cleaning cloth with every purchase on the ReSparkle site. And if you're into budgeting, they have some fantastic packs and things where you can save further. But what I love about this microfiber cleaning cloth is that it is not emitting microplastics into your machine and therefore out through into the waterways or particles of microplastic dust uh, through your laundry. It's actually made from bamboo. So far less harmful to the environment, to wildlife, to our lungs and much less hard on the machine itself when you're washing. So it's definitely worth trying it, seeing what you think and I am a huge advocate for everything they make and they've got some wonderful lifestyle products now um, moving sort of into the hand sanitizers that are totally natural, great to take with you if you don't like using those weirdo fluorescent pink soaps that tend to be in public places. I always just spray my hands and and give them a bit of a rinse in uh, airports and, and places like that when I'm out and about. But yeah, you've got all the details in the show notes. There's the code, there's everything. There's the uh, website to click on to make it nice and easy. So please do go and visit those and uh, claim your free microfiber cloth. 
So hooking into today's show, I do hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, It was wonderful having Mike on the show and I can't wait to see those pictures that you share showing that you are taking on board some of the beautiful advice to bring some hygge into your day-to-day. Hello, Mike. How are you? Hi, Alex. I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am so well and I am so thrilled to have you on the show. (laughs) I came across your TED Talk, you know, as people do when people share things online that they love and I thought, oh, that's that's an interesting subject. I'm going to have have a listen. And it was just after I'd actually started a podcast, I thought, I've got to get Mike on my show. This is a very, very interesting uh, study that you do. And so it's just great to have you here. Now, the very first thing I'd love to ask you is, it's quite early in the morning for you. (laughs) What has made you happiest so far this morning? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. I mean, summer has finally arrived in in Copenhagen after 11 months of winter. So uh, (laughs) We get about one afternoon and then I it's back just... to winter again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here. I've, I've finished uh, yesterday a new book I'm working on. I've had my first cup of coffee. Um, I'm, I'm going to say the, the happy barometer is, is, is pretty far high up today. Nice. For that one day of summer, <laughs> you lucky, lucky thing. So good. <laughs> I'd love to know, Mike, you do fascinating work as the director of the Happiness Institute, were you a little boy, you know, as, as as a little boy, did you say to yourself, when I grow up, I want to become a happiness researcher? How, <laughs> you know, how do you go from, you know, doctor and fireman to to what you ended up doing as you grow up? Where, how did you find happiness as, as something to, to become your great passion? Well, it, it's... I think two things happened. I was working for a uh, think tank, um, another think tank before this one, um, a think tank on sustainability for seven years. And I started to notice how much was happening with happiness research globally, with different governments, different political organizations being sort of focused on well-being, being focused on quality of life and happiness. And I, I became curious, why is it that Denmark always do well in these happiness rankings? There should be somebody trying to discover that, and there should be somebody in Denmark that sort of pools all the knowledge there is on, on sort of the science of well-being. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, maybe I should do that, create a think tank on happiness research. But, you know, it, it sounded a little bit risky. And I had a I had a good well paying paying job, uh, but then the second thing that happened was uh, I had a mentor at at the old company, who suddenly became uh, very ill and died uh, when he was forty nine. Oh goodness! And uh, many years earlier, my own mother had also died when she was forty nine. Uh huh. And so I started to think, okay, well, if you only live to see we're forty nine, what are you going to spend? Uh, I was I was 34 when my mentor died. What are you going to spend the next 15 years doing? Are you going to continue with this job, which is fine, but you're not super passionate about it, or are you going to embark or something on something as crazy as uh, the career of a happiness researcher? Uh, and then I I went with the second path. So it, it was it was um, part curiosity, part being aware that our uh, 
time is limited and we should find something that we are really passionate about. That's beautiful. And, and it's so true. And isn't it, isn't it a shame that us humans are so apocalyptic that we wait for terrible things to happen around us or to us yeah. for, for those jolts? Have you got right. just, okay, first tangent, we're really early with the tangents, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm very well known for the mic as you will see as we progress. But have you come across anything in your research to, to, to tell us why we are like that? Why do bad things happen to have to happen to us for us to change? Mm. Or have I just created a whole new project for you? You have. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I mean, we, 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 are bad, we are bad at, at taking risks. We are relatively risk averse. We, mm. we can see that in different experiments. Uh, people get a greater pain out of losing an amount of money than they gain pleasure in winning that same amount of money. I think we are wired to be risk averse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's why we, we tend to stay uh, on the beaten track. Yeah, fair enough. Now, obviously, you, you start this happiness project. In those early times, what were some of your favorite ahas that you kind of that kind of blew you away as you, as a research team, narrowed in on some of the things that that keep landing Denmark in that top spot? I think, I mean, I, I keep getting ahas and I keep getting excited about the work that we do and there is so much work to be done. Uh, happiness research is a fairly new scientific discipline and there's still a lot of uncharted territory uh, out there and, and things to be discovered. Yeah. But, but basically, we, we try to solve three questions. Uh, first, we try to figure out how do we best measure happiness. Then we try to discover, you know, why are some people happier than others? Why, are some, why, why is Denmark doing well in the happiness rankings? But ultimately, our third question is, is trying to develop ideas on how we can improve quality of life. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, in, in the five years we've worked these questions now, I think you know, there are many interesting findings and, and exciting patterns. One of the things I've been most surprised with is the fact that our genetics matter when it comes to happiness. We're, we're simply born more or less happy. Mm, uh, I was fascinating. See, yeah. I've done my genetic profile recently through um, right. 23andMe. And I was fascinated to see that you actually have genes linked to empathy. Right. It's just amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and we can see identical twins have fairly similar happiness levels, mm-hmm. even though they might have fairly different uh, living conditions. Um, but I mean, you know, but when you think a little bit more about it, it shouldn't be that surprising because we also know that some mental illnesses are linked uh, among you know, parents and children and, and siblings and so on. So, of course, happiness, there is a genetic component as well. Yeah. Um, what I've also been surprised to see is when we look at the global data, we see often that there is a U-shaped curve when it comes to happiness, meaning that we are happiest when we are young and when we are old, but there is sort of a dip in the mid-40s when it comes to happiness. Oh gosh, I'm uh, headed. It's headed right my way. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> but uh, but the good news is that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Excellent. But then, but then it becomes interesting to see, for example, in countries like Scandinavian countries, that dip midlife is not as great as in other countries. 
And we think it might be due to, you know, more family-friendly policies in, in those countries that you have subsidized, uh, subsidized uh, childcare and you have perhaps a better work-life balance in the Nordic countries than in, in most other countries. And we believe that the, the, the reason for the dip midlife is that, you know, mid-40s is the time of life where you're trying to, you know, pursue an interesting career and raise a family and it's it's just a lot of pressure uh, from from several fronts at that time. So if you have policies that enable you to to sort of pursue an interesting career while, while raising a family, that's that's a good starting point. That's definitely a good starting point. I think that's fascinating that some countries have a sharper dip and that you can mm. link that directly to public policy and uh, right. and social social programs. Uh, it makes complete sense because, as you say, it is an extremely full-on, I won't say stressful because some people take to parenthood really beautifully, but, you know, it's mm. full-on. It's busy and that can wear you down and give yeah. you probably give you a sense that you're maybe not as happy as you'd like to be. Yeah. So something else in your research that I find really fascinating is that you Happiness isn't a blanket definition for all. You say it's subjective. Can you explain mm. what you mean by that? Um, I mean, what we care about is how you feel about your life. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I want to give some value, and that's what we want to give a voice. Um, because we can put up some objective metrics, uh, for instance, your income, and saying, okay, if you make... I don't know what the average salary is in Australia, but let's say forty thousand Australian dollars per year. You're you're happier than somebody who makes thirty thousand mm -hmm. dollars per year. And that's not necessarily the case. Is that what you're I, saying? I mean, of course, money matters, but it's not the only thing that matters. Yeah. And, and and I don't see that as a good proxy for measuring happiness. Also, mm. when you meet your friends and you want to find out how they're doing, you ask them how they're how they're doing. You don't ask them how much money they make. Mm. Um, so, so, so what we want, what we want to do is we want to understand why some people feel happier than others. Mm -hmm. And we want to sort of use their own judgment of their life as the metric. And at the end of the day, it's the same thing we do when we, we try to understand uh, mental illness like uh, depression or uh, issues like um, stress or anxiety. Those phenomena are also subjective uh, that at the end of the day is about how we as individuals experience our world. Mm -hmm. And I think happiness is the same thing. We just look at the positive end of the scale. Yeah, right. Okay. Now, speaking of the positive end of the scale again, Denmark obviously <laughs> always seems to rate top. You guys are such winners when it comes to happiness, always number one. But when you look at suicide rates across the world, they're not the lowest in Denmark. Mm. You're somewhere in the middle. And right. in your TED Talk, you talk about that suicide happiness paradox. And I'd mm. love you to share what you've found and why you found that to be because you would – assume, although we should never assume, of course, especially not in the world of research, that it would be absolutely the bottom for people taking their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's a pattern we see in a lot of places. It's a pattern when we look at the suicide happiness paradox, it's a pattern we see 
across countries, but it's also a pattern we see among or within the U.S. states. Mm-hmm. So if you look at life satisfaction within the states of the U.S. or within countries of the world, yeah. if you have a higher level of life satisfaction, there's mm-hmm. also, also a slightly higher level of suicide rates. Wow. We think We think that the reason for this is that it is more difficult to be unhappy in an otherwise happy society. Mm-hmm. It's more difficult to be unhappy in an otherwise happy society. Is that because you feel the contrast more? Yeah, that's yeah. that's what we believe. And and when we look at happiness data and happiness research, one of the most consistent patterns that comes up is how important our social comparisons are. Wow. Uh, I, we, I think we are wired to compare ourselves to each other. Um, it's also the reason why if we ask questions like, imagine there is two worlds and in the first world you make $50,000 and everybody else makes $25,000. Mm-hmm. In the second world you make $100,000 and everybody else makes $200,000. Where would you choose to live? A lot of people would choose to live in the first world, even though they only made 50,000 instead of 100,000 for in the second world, but they make relatively more. They make more than everybody else. Oh, wow. The point yeah. is, we care not only about our ability to consume, we also care about our position in the social hierarchy. So you live in Sydney, let's imagine you have a I don't know, what's a, what's a nice car? A BMW. Mm-hmm. You're happy with your BMW. Then suddenly your neighbor drives up in a Lamborghini right, or a Ferrari. Okay. Yeah. Suddenly you are a little bit less satisfied with your BMW. because Not because your BMW suddenly changed, but because you've been exposed to somebody that has something that is more valuable than yours. Gosh, isn't that depressing? It is a little bit depressing. <laughs> and, and I mean, that, I mean the, 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 the issue is here that we should try not to let happiness be a zero-sum game, mm-hmm. but we should be mindful of how social comparisons affect our happiness. And it's very difficult for us not to sort of activate that mechanism. It's also why some of us become a little annoyed when we go on Facebook because we are bombarded with great news that happens for everybody else. Mm. And it's a, it's, a, it's a tough contrast to hold your life up against because you're fully aware of the good and the bad dimensions of your life, whereas you see only the good news from everybody else. Yeah. Another example of this, of this issue is that when we look at unemployed people, we can see that Uh, unemployment, there is a higher risk of suicide. You lose your source of income, you lose some of your identity, you lose some of your social uh, relationships. But what we see is that there is a higher risk of suicide in areas with low unemployment than high unemployment. Even though that it might be easier to find a new job if there is low unemployment, there is a higher social stigma around being unemployed again Mm. social comparisons this is really interesting i have to give you an example because i have a male friend uh, who was 
unemployed, almost by choice really, um, because he was recovering from a big accident he'd had. And he wouldn't go to the gym in the middle of the day classes. He would still go at the 6am class or the 5.30pm class because he felt that by going in the middle of the day, it highlighted the fact that he wasn't working. And this was a beautiful, um, you know, very affluent area. um, And and I think it's exactly what you've just said. It's that that contrast that we feel. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Wow. So we see that in a lot of places. And, and, And that's why... Our belief is that one of the reasons for this, the happiness suicide paradox is that it is more difficult to be unhappy in an otherwise happy society. Because if you are feeling low and you are surrounded by people who feel everything is going great, life is wonderful, I'm so happy, yada yada, then your own unhappiness might seem stronger. Right, of course. And I guess... You know, thinking of my own experience, you could liken it to that breakup in your early 20s and it was devastating and I cried and cried and cried for weeks and then my girlfriends would drag me out nightclubbing and all you would see around you is people yeah. laughing and smiling and dancing exactly. and having the best time or, you exactly. know, someone who didn't break up with their boyfriend and they kept going out and and so, you know, the, the highlight of their happiness becomes also the highlight of your unhappiness. Right. Exactly. So how do we protect ourselves, do you believe? How can we rebuild happiness in these sorts of circumstances? I think I think being aware of that mechanism yeah. in, in terms of social persons, I think perhaps creating a better culture of our you know, social media behavior that we also, when we are happy, become better at also telling the stories that you know of events or things that happen in our life that are not so great all the time Mm. and i think you know in in general and this goes for all countries you know to have a better more open conversation about mental health you know i think denmark and australia is doing is doing fairly well compared to uh, to what i see elsewhere uh, globally but there's still a long way to go in order to reduce stigma around depression and mental illness uh, that you know prevents some people from from seeking help and getting help uh, so 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 having conversations with with family and friends about mental illness and having the courage to ask some of the difficult questions mm. uh, i think is a way forward absolutely and you know even when you're just minorly blue and it's not a full blown mental illness or mm. a mental mm. health issue you know, I, I often share on Instagram what I call bake fails. And so it'll yeah. be this hideous <laughs> thing that I would have experimented on and it just went pear-shaped. And I will always share those moments. And the relief that people share in the comments is yes. really quite extraordinary. Oh, thank God you're one of us. You know, it right. happens to everybody, uh, you know, and people really band together around imperfection as something beautiful. And I think we yes. need to do that way more. It's, yes. it's so true. Obviously, a bake agree. fail is a little bit of a trivial example perhaps, but... No, but, it, I mean, it, it's it's part of a bigger picture. And and uh, I've actually had the more or less the same experience. I, I just didn't go as far as you because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get to the baking. I had great <laughs> ambitions of baking after... And this is... Okay, this is confession hour. I walk, watched 
something maybe also have it in Australia, sort of the Great Bake Off. Oh where, yes, yes, and, yes. Yeah, and I saw that, and I I thought I'm gonna bake two. I'm going out, and I bought yeast. <laughs> and then after a month, the yeast was still lying in my fridge. It had gotten too old. <laughs> uh, it was after the expiry date. So I posted a picture of that yeast uh, on Facebook and said it was the cheapest illusion I had ever bought. <laughs> and uh, and the, uh, the reaction was also very, uh, very positive from, from, uh, from people on Facebook. So and more more bake fails on Facebook. More bake fails on Facebook, everybody. <laughs> there you go. Bake fail hashtag we can all meet there. <laughs> now, baking provides us quite a beautiful little segue into Hugo, I think, because um, I think you said this, actually. There's nothing more Hugo than the smell of something freshly baked. And for people out there who have never heard of this term, never heard of this random guy that I've brought onto the podcast, <laughs> can you please share with us what this most precious, non-translatable thing or state of being is or state of cultivation is that you Danish people are so famous for? Well, it's, it's a mix of sort of togetherness, warmth, relaxation, peace of mind, security, everyday happiness. All that together in one bowl, add yeast, boom, you got you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, it's, the thing is, I, I think it's, it's, it's something that happens everywhere. You know, enjoying the smell of freshly baked bread together with your friends, having a wonderful evening at home, you know, listening to the storm outside with a glass of wine in your hand. That's Hugo. And of course, that happens in Australia as well as it does in Denmark and everywhere else. The difference here is that Danes have a word that describes that situation or activity. Uh-huh. I think that's the main difference. Yeah. Uh, but, but we see it as part of our national identity and part of our culture. So that's why Danes are obsessed with Hugo. We talk about it a lot. We practice it a lot. We acknowledge it when we see it. And it's, it's, it's also something that sort of influences our behavior. Uh, I very much believe that our language shapes our actions and our hopes and our dreams. And we can also see that in the data, for instance, lighting is very important when it comes to Hugo. Uh, having the light writing, lighting in the room creates the right atmosphere. And Hugo is really about, it's also been called the art of creating a nice atmosphere. Mm. So lighting is important. And, and Danes would like to have sort of softer, warmer light. And candles give off that light. And that's why we can see in the data that Danes consume twice as much candle wax as <laughs> number two in Europe. And that is probably down to, uh, to the Hugo uh, doctrine, if we can call it that. Yeah. Well, what I love as well, though, is that you guys don't use those horrific scented candles full of no. fake fragrances and things. No. How do you think culturally it came to be that you, you saw that those were nasty, evil, icky things? I think it's part of a, a broader approach or broader love in Denmark of organic materials. Uh, if you take our food consumption, uh, I think we're also the country in Europe with the largest consumption of organic foods. Mm, you are. So everything that you know is sort of artificial, have something added to it, uh, we, we try to steer away from that uh, in general. And I think candles, is, it comes under that same judgment. 
Yeah, so you yeah. saw them and it just didn't make the grade. It was like, no, yeah. that's that's yeah. absolutely not Hugo. I love it. <laughs> so good. You know, and it's so good for preventing hormone disruption too because there's lots of nasty chemicals in those things. So that made me so happy when I read that in your book. <laughs> now, something else that I loved about you describing Hugo was that it's not just necessarily a nice thing to do or to cultivate, but there's a survival strategy element and there's an element that heightens the experience of it if there's a perceived danger or lack of safety, like a storm outside. Right. Is that written anywhere in folklore or is it just sort of something <laughs> that's come to, um, to be a part of the broader definition? Yeah, it, it, there's not something that's written in stone 2,000 years ago that <laughs> describes Hugo. <laughs> Uh, so, so, so it's it's just been part of the culture and the language. Mm. So, actually, our word for scary is unhuge, unhugelish. Oh, right. So, so, so in our language, there is there is the notion that the opposite of of hugu is is something scary. But you're right; something can become even more hugely. If there is an element of controlled danger mm. outside, if, if you're sitting inside and you are protected and there's a storm outside, then it's incredibly huge. I uh, totally, <laughs> I, but I believe that. Like if I'm sipping on a little hot chocolate right now because I'm talking to you and I had to get into the spirit of things, of course, but I absolutely believe that if it was raining really, really hard outside right now, it would feel even more cozy. Right. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. We have that same sense. Mm. And to you personally, what is it? What are your favorite Huga activities of all time? It, it, I think it actually links in with, with what we were talking about just now. I think one of the most Hugely experiences I've had was in a, in a cabin in, in Sweden with some friends where it, it was also wintertime and we had been out hiking in the day but came back to the cabin in the afternoon and um, we had a fireplace, so we got the fire going, and we had also prepared some stew, which we started to to reheat. So those were the sort of the sounds we could hear, the, the stew boiling and the fire in the fireplace. Mm-hmm. And we, we didn't have anything else to do that day, so we were just sitting back relaxing. Actually, I think we were completely silent. And then one of the guys said, you know, could this be any more hugely? And then one of the girls said, yes, if there was a storm outside. Ah, yeah. That sort of sense of togetherness, but protection and relaxation. Um, so so that I think that was one of my most truly experiences. Oh, that's beautiful. And how do you cultivate it in your day-to-day? What are some of the little things that you do? I think, I think we're just, um, I think we're mindful of trying to get a little bit of hugo on a daily basis basis by mm-hmm. focusing on togetherness and relaxation and gratitude and sort of simple pleasures. Yeah. I think that's also why we consume such large quantities of pastries and <laughs> uh, sweets and, 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 and chocolate and, and coffee as we do in Denmark. And, and essentially, I think, you know, Hugo is, you could call it a pursuit of everyday happiness because it's not this grand success or once in a time achievement it's it's everyday moments of feeling good so having a word for it also helps you plan and think about it invite people over for hugo 
mm. uh, recognize it when we feel it. You know, said, ah, how this is very hugly. You know, when we see each other next week, we'll talk about how hugly uh, that evening was. So I think that helps us become more mindful of it. That's beautiful. And to extend into a more specific example of that, the idea that in Denmark, you'd be a crazy freak to be at the office after 6pm or on the weekend, it's virtually unheard of, which I just think (laughs) is so excellent. Yeah. And the fact that that then means that not just, uh, you know, especially in a double working family, it means the mother and the father or the mother and mother or father and father, if you've got that type of a family whichever the parents are, even a single family, Mm -hmm. coming home, cooking and eating with the children. Right. And that happens every night pretty much, right? It does. It does. There's, uh, I I have a quite a a group of international friends and they all say that one of the main differences between their country, whether that's, you know, India, US, UK or Mexico and Denmark is that the approach to time is fundamentally different Mm. that we value time with family and friends in a different way also of course enabled and have produced by you know family friendly policies in terms of work-life balance but yes the the office is a morgue after five or six you do have dinner time with your family on a daily basis parents pick up their kids moms and dads um, at four or five uh, in the afternoon. And, and that is, you know, it, there's no excuse needed if you need to leave the office at four to pick up your kid, which I, I, I hear is, is, is different, for instance, in the, from the working culture in, in, in London. I don't know how it is in, in Sydney. Oh, in Sydney, um, you would be gently pushed out of the business over time, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would. It's fact. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so, yeah. That that approach is is different, and we can then also see it when it comes to how people spend their time. Mm. If we look in among the European countries, we can see that Danes are second only to to France in terms of time spent eating mm-hmm. uh, per day. <laughs> I'm um, half French, so <laughs> I completely know that statistic to be true. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So you know the, the the importance and the value of the the meal and and so and the, important of the ritual. Yeah. Uh, that it has, and we can see, for instance, that that um, the UK is actually at the bottom of that list. Um, oh wow! In terms of, of of time spent eating per day, it's it's half the time of how the French eat. And yet, triple or quadruple the obesity. So I mean, that really tells exactly. you something, doesn't it? Exactly. Mm. exactly. But we can also see if you eat in front of the television, you are inclined to eat more uh, than if you are sitting at the table having a conversation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. And something interesting that I've found in my work, we have an e-course that is about teaching children to thrive and love real food. Mm -hmm. In Australia and in America, um, unfortunately, we just don't culturally seem to have the connection to food and provenance and and helping children just realize that that is normal food. There is no kids menu. There is no you eating right. now and then we eat later and, and all of those sorts of things. And it's been an incredible learning journey as someone who's come from a French culture yeah. to work with Australian families and instigate some of the things that are so intrinsically 
you know, inbuilt in my DNA to have done with my own uh, family. Right. Um, and, and help actually articulate what that is, how it looks and how to build it into your family. Yes. It's just amazing when people say, oh, my gosh, we switched off the television and little Johnny ate his dinner. And yeah. it, it will just be this huge light bulb that goes off for people, whereas people from some northern European countries who just don't have those issues because you just don't have that as part of your culture to have children having television on in the background or being able to bring toys to the table. It's about connecting right. with your people. Right. So interesting. In, interestingly, I, I spoke with a, a Canadian journalist a couple of months ago and, and he had uh, read about Hugo as well. And, and uh, afterwards he went out and bought, he said, some chandeliers and they started to light candles at home for dinner time. And mm. uh, he and his wife have three kids, uh, three boys two twins at 18 and one boy at 15, I think. Yeah. And at the beginning when he started uh, lighting the candles, the boys were like, hey, what's going on? Do you want to have a romantic time with mom? <laughs> Should we just leave? <laughs> uh, but then, then he noticed that suddenly the, the, the three boys, they started to light the candle. Uh-huh. Uh, the candles. But, but more inter- interestingly, he said he noticed that now their uh, meal time is longer. Uh, It's 15 to 20 minutes longer. And he said it's because the light put the boys in a storytelling mood. Mm -hmm. Like you're by the campfire kind of thing. Exactly. And and they sip sip their wine. They're they're French Canadians, so they have wine even when they're 15. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And he said they don't just shovel in their food. They enjoy their food. They enjoy their wine. They talk about their day. So I think it's interesting to see what little changes in our behavior can have or little changes in our setup can have on our behavior. I love that. I think that in itself is what we should set as the listener challenge for this week, for everybody to try a week of candlelit dinner and see how it affects your family life around the table. I love it. Let's do an experiment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Love a good experiment. Now you talk about a Hugo rescue kit What's in mm-hmm. there? I, I mean, I love a good emergency plan. You know, if a friend, <laughs> if a friend is troubled or a partner or family member is just having a terrible day and, you know, there's nothing worse than being just told chin up or cheer up. That just doesn't work. So in this little kit, what do we put in there? How do we, how do we arm ourselves? <laughs> well, there's again, a candle. There, there, Obviously, there's going to be there, a candle, there, right? Probably candles, <laughs> candles. Again, there's no doctrine. I would put in stuff that will bring you in a good mood uh-huh. something you know perhaps some small treats uh, some 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 nice quality chocolate some pictures that remind you of of good times your favorite music maybe a a, a nice uh, blanket so you can cuddle up with your favorite book uh, you know whatever will make you feel good i would put that in the emergency hugo kit and as a suitcase which you can pull out if the storm hits Sydney and you want to get some extra hygge, uh, <laughs> hygge going. But I think it should be up to the individual. But I would put in some some treats and, and something that makes you feel good. What a beautiful idea to do that for yourself in a little suitcase that you can pull out. I'm I'm just, I'm going to be doing that. That's, that's <laughs> so good. I think it helps us understand why Danish people are so good at this inbuilt 
sense of, this sense of building happiness into your day-to-day, little moments of joy and happiness right. into your day-to-day because it's articulated, because it's talked about, because there are specific things that seem to set off those happiness triggers. It, it's, yeah. it, you've gone further to defining what daily happiness looks like than many other nations, I think. Yeah, and I think I think it also has something to do with recognizing that happiness doesn't have to cost anything. Mm. I think what works well in the Nordic countries is that to some extent quality of life is cheap because we do pay a lot of, of taxes. So we invest a lot in sort of the common good and we can experience quality of life uh, whether we have a lot or not a lot of money. Mm. And I think also Hugo, you know, to us, Hugo should be inexpensive. Uh, it's actually used as a sort of get out of jail card. If you walk into a restaurant that seems too expensive and too luxurious, you can say, should we find a place that's more hugely? <laughs> you, you yeah, let's find a place that's more hugely. Um, so, so it should be something that's accessible. Yes. Um, and, and, and I think there's also a strength and a peace of mind in knowing that my quality of life or my happiness is not based on the size of my paycheck. Agree. And I think, you know, because so many nations attach quality of life to being able to afford that BMW or the Louis Vuitton bag or, you know, I'll be happy when I achieve this or I buy that instead of I'll be happy when I'll pull my little suitcase out, light a candle, break open a a block of chocolate and um, read my favourite book. Right. Mm. Exactly. So... What are you working on next? What is in store at the Happiness Institute right now? Have you got a, a project on the go? Oh, we got, we got, we got too many. Too uh, many. So much um, to study, so little time. I mean, just three examples. We are working for a foundation where we followed around 600 young people over almost two years where we are looking at how we best can improve their quality of life by involving them in different projects. So we measured their happiness on, on different dimensions when they started and, and we are measuring the effects now. So we'll advise the foundation of how they most efficiently can improve happiness or quality of life for young people. Mm-hmm. A second project is that we are working with someone called Leo Innovation Lab who wants to improve quality of life for people living with psoriasis which is a skin condition oh yeah so we developed this app together with them called so happy um, where we are looking at happiness dimensions for people living with uh, this skin disease and we got about i think a hundred thousand patients now across the world and we're trying to see how big is the happiness gap uh, in different countries oh, wow. and then i've just finished um my next book, which will come out in, in September. Uh, so um, I will also start to to sort of do some, some interviews around that in, in the coming months. Oh, we'll have um, to have you back. <laughs> yes, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's also about these things that we've been talking about now, um, how we can get or find quality of life without spending a lot of money and how we build uh, togetherness, how we take streets and turn them into communities that will, will enable us to, to be happier. So all these things we've been talking about, I'm trying to condense. Mm. I'll have to introduce you to the wonderful Malcolm Rands, who was the founder of EcoStore, 
um, a big, yep. big ecological company, um, but he's now working in housing development, public housing development, and he's got this fantastic vision for creating more connected and together communities in the way that you build very intentionally the public spaces that flow throughout the housing to actually design it so that people literally have to bump into each other more and Mm, and things like that. It's so fascinating. I'm going to make sure you guys get connected because I think you'd have great chats around that. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Now, obviously everyone's inspired to build a little hygge into their day and I'd love to, to just see if we can distill from all of the wonderful things because sometimes the human brain just needs a little focus on two tiny things we can do. What, mm-hmm. what if we were to just choose two things to change? I know we have our challenge of candlelit dinners, so I'm kind of cheating by adding another two onto that, I know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but what, what two things would you suggest that could literally create uh, the, the best for all, you know, as a generalisation, best little moments of happiness for us in the coming week? Mm, okay, so I would also try to find the spot in our homes mm-hmm. where we have what we call the hygge mm. which is impossible to pronounce if you're a non-Danish speaker, <laughs> but it basically means the, the nook of hygge or the corner of hygge. Uh, and it's the place in your home where we, you would love to sit and watch the storm outside with that hot chocolate or that you know glass of red wine so so having sort of a a, a sort of cave of hygge where you perhaps have some pillows by the window or a blanket and where you sort of can cuddle up and and watch the storm outside we need to identify that place and make it even more hygge. oh i love um, that yeah and then i would invite some people over because i, I think hygge is also about being with the people we love, I would invite some people over and instead of you preparing sort of the grand meal, uh, have people bring uh, ingredients to make little dishes so you cook the meal together. Oh, I love uh, because that. Because I think hygge is also about, you know, equality and having things relaxed uh, and everybody chipping in. And I think often the, the atmosphere can be even better. The conversation could be even better when we are cooking the meal together instead of sitting across from each other at the table. So I would have sort of a, a, a shared cook-off meal thing with my friends. Oh, I love that. And in your book, you talk about how there's no grandstanding in hygge. There's no, right. you know embellishment of one's talents you know it throws hygge out of whack if one person is the star of the show bringing out all the incredible food and and i thought that was so sociologically interesting yeah Yeah. very cool and uh i've I've created um we are a bunch of 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 guys who meet once in a while and and cook together exactly on these premises Mm -hmm. so of course somebody is the host because we need a kitchen but but everybody brings ingredients for a dish and then it's you know, we have a theme. Maybe it's Mexican food. Maybe it's you have to prepare something with duck. Or one time we made uh, sausages from ground up. And, oh, nice. and well, you thought so. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, we spend four hours, you know, creating. You know, I think we had six different kind of sausages. 
I think one even used camel meat, one used licorice. I, I used something with apple and, and some spice, you know, and, and it, it seemed very nice. And we were all really hungry. I think we sat down at the table at, at 10 and we had these, you know, mountains of sausages and they tasted horrible. Each oh, and every one no. of them was a you know, complete disaster, but we still had a very, very hugely evening. And it's now been, it's now been, I think, three years since the, uh, since the uh, sausage sausage disaster of 2014, but we still talk about what went wrong that night. So it has it has it has created a nice a nice memory. Um, I love it. But it, it 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 was nice to you know prepare uh, the meal together. Yeah. Even though we failed miserably. And hashtag, know, hashtag sausage fails. Sausage fails. <laughs> uh, hashtag leave it to the butcher. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Um, no, I love that idea. And, you know, you've inspired me because um, pre-child, my husband and I used to always have a group of friends over, name the theme of the night and uh-huh. do a potluck dinner. So, you know, it'd be Mexican yes. or Spanish or whatever. And they, you know, people still talk about those dinner parties. So you've completely yeah. inspired me to bring them back. It's Happy to hear that. Yeah, really beautiful. Mike, thank you so much for your wonderful, simple words of wisdom. You know, it's nothing that's rocket science. It's just no. a conscious awareness of bringing that into our everyday and the gains that are to be had if we do. Exactly. I can't wait to see everybody's candlelit dinners on Instagram. <laughs> Please hashtag yes. Lotox Life and Huga because it'll be great to sort of, you know, connect with all those images and see how everybody's going. So I can't wait to have you back once your second book's out. I know that was was a very sneaky little invite that you made for yourself there, but I I, I took you up on it. You see what I did there? Yeah, well done. (laughs) You have a beautiful day and uh, a beautiful day to all the listeners out there as well. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining me for today's show. Check out the show notes at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. And if you wanted to maybe share a quote and something that really jumped out for you, you can find us on Instagram at lowtoxlife or simply hashtag lowtoxlife across social media. I absolutely love bringing you the show. Thank you for any of the star ratings or one-line reviews that you guys have left. It helps me know what you've been loving and what you'd love to see more of. I'll see you next week. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.